1: Your kids are growing up in that world, in the worst, in the tipping point world, in the worst-case scenario world. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah, but that's not very serious, Catherine, because this is a problem. Our kids get told we're all going to die. They're worried about dying. We're not. Even if if it's three or four degrees increase, we're not going to die. People aren't going to die from that.
1: People are going to die from that. They're already dying from that. But anyway, the question is, if you're wrong, right, if you're wrong, how will you account to your own children for your own role in preventing climate action in this country? How will you do that? Hello, people of Pods. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia and the host. And with me from Matt, where are you?
0: I'm at home in your food. Yes, Not so in much in home quarantine, but. Uh, <laughs> Our interrupted school holidays, let's say that. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's going to be in Brisbane, but anyway, that's life.
1: That is life. My guest, as you might have gathered from The Voice, is Matt Canavan, a Nationals Senator and currently in Queensland lockdown. But anyway, we want to retrace our steps to events last week, which were pretty significant in politics. Obviously, Barnaby Joyce returned as leader of the National Party, so... Let's start there, Matt. You've known Barnaby a long time. Uh, you're a confidant of his. Why is Barnaby Joyce back as Nationals leader?
0: Well, there's a technical answer to that question. The technical answer is he's back as deputy prime minister because he's got the majority support of the Nationals party room. That's how our system works. I can't. I'll, I'll try and speak, I suppose, because that's what you want me to do for the for the room. Uh, but I so I think he's back because. The country needs a significant injection of common sense uh, and and direct talk. And uh, I think in the, in the week that he's been there, uh, he's shown that. He does speak directly to the Australian people for that reason. He's got a following. He also speaks, frankly, behind the scenes as well. Uh, and it's really important for those of us that represent parts of the country that have a lower representation, the House of Reps, that you've got that strong voice around the Cabinet table, Uh, to defend the interests of uh, rural and regional Australia. Uh, I think he did do that very well as Deputy Prime Minister in his first iteration. Uh, He didn't leave that job for any, uh, any deficiency in how he was doing the job as Deputy Prime Minister. Obviously, some other issues came up. Uh, and I think he'll do a pretty good job in his second 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 stint as well.
1: I think you've sort of addressed it inferentially, but let's let's sort of be more direct about it. What, how will he be different as leader to Michael McCormick?
0: I I, I do think Barnaby will fight much harder around that cabinet table for the interests of rural and regional Australia. Michael was a he's a he's a great person of high integrity, which was on show last week, but we we. As I said, can't afford not to have our our best heaviest hitters in the in the room. It, it has been a whole discussion about cabinet and roles at the moment as well. This week, the, the most important room though is is committees like the National Security Committee and Expansion Review Committee. And the Nationals Party only has one representative on those committees. That's the leader, and so it's, we just cannot afford not to have our strongest performer at that uh, in those in those forums where decisions are really made. I think it's good for the Nationals Party, good for regional Australia to have Barnaby back around those tables. But
1: is it that uh, that we're not going to spend the whole conversation on this, but I, d- I just want to tease it out a little Everybody bit Everybody else more. talking about Barnaby? No, well, no, 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 <laughs> no. But, like, it, it's, it's important to get to the bottom of the specifics of it, right? Like, what, and obviously you don't want to be gratuitous about Michael, but what is it that Michael didn't do? Be specific.
0: Yeah. Look. Uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll start generically. Uh, and as I say, I'm not. I don't want to provide a running commentary on individuals, and I will always say Michael's an excellent member of Parliament, been an excellent minister. Uh, uh, the the hardest thing in this job, though, uh, the hardest thing in Canberra is to is to maintain your courage when you're under so much pressure to do other things. And it's a lot of pressure and it's not a pejorative statement against anyone to say that sometimes people struggle to, to to withstand such pressure especially when you're a minority in the room sometimes it is that national's voice around the cabinet table or, or voices in cabinet but only a single voice in some of those subcommittees against the world and it's really hard to withstand sometimes uh, what otherwise is a consensus fuse I've seen Barnaby do that time and time again. That's why I've always backed him because he's, he's just got no peer. When it comes to that, so many times he'll take positions and do things where your the advisors, you know, the minders are saying, hey, you know, that's very courageous and uh, he'll just do it because he, he believes it's the right thing and I, I really respect that. Often I think he is justified or is... Uh, ultimately proven correct, uh, he's got good judgment and uh, the courage to boot, so he deserves to be the deputy prime minister.
1: We'll get on to uh, a, a net zero in a tick because that's that's a critical issue and and has become wrapped up in Barnaby Joyce's return to the leadership. But first of all, Mindigo Matt, you, you glossed over slightly, and I don't mean that pejoratively, the reasons why Barnaby Joyce left as, as Deputy Prime Minister. There's been quite a backlash from women associated around agricultural groups, regional groups, about Joyce's return. It's, it's been quite noisy already. Do you think that that is a problem? For the Nats, if you've got women who are naturally aligned with your base, with your core constituency, standing up and saying, oh, look, you know, the conduct, unbecoming conduct, uh, (laughs) there's a bit of a problem with that, with the leader of the party and the Deputy Prime Minister. How do you rate that as a risk?
0: Well, I'll just um, define the word problem, I suppose, because you've asked, is there a problem with that? I'll put aside the, the po- political problem or the problem of winning elections, I suppose, which is one way to interpret that question. Another way to interpret it is, you know, is there, is there a problem with what Barnaby did? Look, I, I, I don't think that it, it, it impacted his uh, professional uh, judgment at all, but in saying that, um, you know, what happened was extremely unfortunate. It did offend many people, including, as you say, many people who are traditional traditionally our supporters, I completely understand the views of those that, that were aghast at at, uh, at what went on in, in largely Barnaby's personal life as I said but uh look it's, it's really hard to separate the personal and political particularly these high profile roles and and Barnaby ultimately paid a price for that uh if he hadn't have been deputy Prime Minister or if he hadn't have perhaps had the profile he did, he probably wouldn't have paid the same price now that's not I'm not complaining about that I know he doesn't either that's just life there are there have been other ministers members of parliament. That have engaged in behaviour very, very similar to Barnaby's, yet um, have not had to resign or pay any real professional price, but, but that, that goes. That goes with the higher pay grades and the high profile that he has. That's part and parcel of the territory. You've got to suck it up as he did for, for three years um, and get on with life. Um, in terms of the other side of this question, is it a political problem for us? Is it going to cost us at the ballot box Look, uh, I mean, I just, as I said, I, I don't see a lot of quantitative evidence for that. You're right to say there are, as I say, women uh, not, not not enthralled by Barnaby returning. There are men not enthralled by Barnaby returning as well. And then there are women that are happy that he's back and there are men that are happy that he's back. Uh, uh, you, you, you know, the bits I suppose we've got to judge is his own elections in New England. He certainly hasn't taken a hit, any, 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 any evidential, any material evidence that he's taken a hit with men or women. And as I say, he, he can be a polarising figure. Mm. But... On net terms, I think politically, he yeah, adds a lot to our to us because people have been crying out for this this stronger voice. They feel like they're ignored and derided in Canberra, and uh, they the the quiet Australians feel that they've got their microphone back. that's the loud message I've heard over the past week.
1: Okay, let's do Net zero now. Now does the return of Barnaby Joyce to the Nationals leadership mean that the Nats will not support Scott Morrison? Uh, in any commitment to achieve net zero emissions by 2050,
0: oh God, I don't want to disappoint you. I want to give direct. If you what my views are, ask me what my views are, I'm more than happy to be direct. I can't speak on behalf of the Nationals Party Room, uh, especially about a decision that is yet to be taken or a future. Your, your question was couched in the, in the future tense. You know, I can't make predictions about that. I can tell you what's happened in the past, and in the past, um, when Uh, This issue of net zero emissions has been discussed. There's been zero support in the party room, in the party room discussions for it as an idea. And it is just an idea at the moment. There's very little detail or or policy proposal ahead of the party uh, room.
1: That's in a way, look, sorry, I don't want to disrupt your flow, but in a way that's, that's what's surprising to me about this whole discussion because at the moment Scott Morrison's positioning on net zero is a talking point. It, it's nothing beyond that. Uh, the the liberals, at no stage, to 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 my hearing or recollection, have said they intend to legislate such a target. So so, what's the fuss about?
0: Well, it's it's true that uh, it's a talking point for the prime minister. It's not true to say that it's a talking point for many of our liberal colleagues. It's not true to say that it's a talking point for the labor party. It's not true to say it's a talking point for many of the media, because the the wide held view is that. The change in the Prime Minister's language this year was all just to just to foreshadow uh, taking to Glasgow a commitment of net zero emissions. And it's absolutely the case that we are under pressure from other countries to adopt a specific target to to reach net zero emissions by 2050. And so this is a live policy debate that it's fair and rational for the Nationals Party to have discussions about, uh, to come to views on, and be concerned about, given the potential impact on on our, on our people. I mean, I've got a raft of concerns with this this slogan of net zero emissions, but prime among those is that taken to a tenth degree would mean that large parts of our cattle sector would have to shut. That almost all of our coal mining, you would think, would have to go. And you were talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs in regional Australia. And and and, and you are right. To so some some of the media's some. In the broader communities, is just like oh, what's the problem? It sounds great. It's going to be fine. Well, that's hold people's livelihoods up here, uh, and that's why we're a little bit cautious about yeah. running down this path.
1: Yeah, yeah, and no, and we'll we'll drill into all that. But just on, uh, just roll back to the party room just for a tick. Um, you said there's no enthusiasm in the Nationals' party room for net zero. None in previous uh, conversations that you guys have had. Now, I think. I think you're probably probably right there. However, I don't think the view inside the National Party Room is, well, unanimous is a stupid word, I, but I think there's more nuance. Well, in yeah,
0: both. all I'm reporting is discussions that have been had. So, No, 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 no of course. Yeah, somewhat, and, I'm, yeah.
1: and, and, and to be clear, I'm not asking you to answer for others, Matt. This is a conversation yep. between you and I about your views. But, look, I think there are people in your party room who would do a deal on net zero. And in fact, Darren Chester uh, has written, a, I think, an op-ed in the Herald Sun today. I don't know if you've seen it, but articulating a sort of basically saying resisting the transition is like living in the 50s and the Nats can't present to people as living in the 50s, right? So the the, the view in your party room, I reckon, is just slightly more diverse than the way you're presenting it.
0: Well, um, all, all I'm mentioning too is just the formal discussions we've had. Yeah. Um, that's not to say there are people who have not spoken or not, not divulged those views within the party room context that have a different position. That's up to them. Now I haven't seen Darren's um, column, although I don't think glib comparisons to different decades in history help the debate that much. Mm. This has got to be about and should be about the detail.
1: Mm. Oh no, and no, That's did, the biggest
0: concern. Now, now, all I can say is that from what I've seen, that's been put on the table. Absolutely not. There's no way I'd support net zero emissions because it seems like this is just another idea to help people who are guilty about carbon emissions uh, net off their sins by sending the bill to to country areas, which is exactly what we've done so far. This is not a a, a forecast of doom. It's It's actually the history of how we've reduced our emissions. The way we've reduced carbon emissions in Australia to date has been by locking up whole lots of land in rural Australia, shutting down job opportunities, stripping property rights away from farmers, while emissions in the cities have gone up, have gone up, haven't but,
1: fallen. Uh, no, well, uh, that's well, how we've done. It. Well, that's in part because there haven't been mechanisms to reduce emissions. But anyway, that's 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 set that to one side, Ryan. Set that to one side. Why, though, do you think, given? Where the global environment is given, as Treasury said in the intergenerational report this week, that we're basically in a net zero trading environment in our region now. Our biggest export destinations—China, South Korea, Japan—all moving in a net zero direction. Why? What's the rationale? Like, you know, I don't
0: believe that for a second. I don't agree with that conclusion. No, I, I just don't. I mean, it just, just defies all all, all facts. But- uh, I mean, no one could suggest that China's moving to net zero emission. I mean, give me a break Yes, they've made a statement about it. Anyone who swallows statements from the Chinese Communist Party does not deserve to be treated as a sensible and logical person in a policy debate. Of course, communists lie and distort. That's what they're about. But, but, um, but, but hang on. And We're they've getting... got a record of doing this in China.
1: But uh, and... Look, you and I, let's, let's just try and reset us for a tick and put us on a unity position or a unity ticket on a couple of issues, right? I think you and I would agree that the detail of this is critically important.
0: Mm. I think
1: we would both agree with that.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: I would think that you and I agree that uh, that there's a lot of greenwashing in in this whole conversation that occurs. You've just referred to that, right? I think yep. we would both agree with that. Yep. Now, what I don't understand in your position, because I respect you and you're a bright bloke, why it is that you think that Australia can avoid a transition? That the rest of the world is actively moving towards. Now you say, you say, why should we believe the Communist Party in China? I don't believe the Communist Party in China, but I know that rationality and logic tells me that over the next decade there will be a pitched battle between China and America for the low emissions technology of the future. Right? That that well, is what logic. I don't agree logic, with that either. But
0: but anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, th- this is this is part. I mean, I do think we we have fundamental fundamental difference. Analyses of the current world environment and what's the biggest risks to our peace, prosperity, and security. Where, where we are in Unity Ticket, I'm sure we want to see the best for Australia and, and, and us take the best decisions that put us in the best place to manage the risks over the next two decades. Uh, not to try and paraphrase you too heavily, but you are saying the biggest risk is that we get left behind while other countries cut their carbon emissions and we become an international pariah. Correct. I, I don't see that as a big risk. I just don't. But uh, why don't you um, see it as a yep, big risk? Yep. Yep. I'm happy, to, I'm happy to, to outline that. So the reason I don't see it as a big risk is because still the biggest priorities for our trading partners in our region and by far the biggest countries in the world, their biggest priorities remain the development of their own peoples, uh, the industrialisation of their countries. They pay lip service to the climate change discussion when they need to at Davos or international meetings. They're very good at this. And they go back home and, like last year in China, build a record amount of coal-fired power. They built double the amount of coal-fired power we have in this country in one year in China last year, while they, at the same time, said, yep, we're committed to net zero emissions by 2060. Likewise, India. India has flat out said, they've at least been upfront about it, but flat out said they're not signing up to net zero emissions. They don't see any reason why... The developing world should uh, sacrifice when they're not yet industrialized, so I don't know how we do that when you've got now now basically a quarter of the world's population who I don't think will go towards net and zero emissions time in the future japan as as well, Japan didn't meet their Kyoto targets <laughs> you know, again, now they're saying they they're, they're going to sign up to uh, to paris and and beyond. They didn't meet their Kyoto targets. I mean, how much can even they be trusted on these issues? Because, again, I think they'll put their own economic security, energy security ahead of these issues. And then right through Southeast Asia and Africa, really you're looking at a very similar circumstance to to North Asia and East Asia where they want to develop, they want to grow. Now, that's our region. That's where we are. A bit, a bit. On top of that, where I think the biggest risk to our country in the next 10 to 20 years it's not climate change, it's aggression from the Chinese Communist Party. That's the biggest risk to our peace, prosperity, and security. And in fact, signing up, if we're serious about reducing our emissions, that will minimise and handicap our ability to respond to that much greater threat, in my view, because we won't be, we'll, we'll shut down more of our industry, uh, we'll make it, it'll make it harder for us to supply industrial goods to our nation that we'd need in any conflict. And I think that comes to the core here about the different risks. Now, that's fine, we can have different assessment of risks. But my assessment of the risks is that uh, the risk of aggression and conflict is a much, much bigger problem than us requiring to sign up to climate change action. And I I put America in that model as well. I mean, everybody seems to think because Biden's been elected, America's going to be there for the long haul. What happens in 2022 if the Republicans take back the House? What happens in 2024 if Biden loses? they, they, They have very real prospects and you'll just get a swing back because the republicans certainly aren't signed up to this agenda.
1: Well, yeah, but okay, but but you're presenting the transition in very binary terms. You you you're suggesting that the transition only creates loss. It doesn't create It doesn't create new jobs. It doesn't create new industries. It doesn't create new economic opportunities. Right? That's that's not right. That's that that's actually not right to present. I I didn't
0: quite say that, but but and you're you're right to to say that, that, man. You're you're right to saying that. Yeah. Okay. Well, what I would say is that any any attempt to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide emissions we make in this country will come at a cost at a net cost to our nation. Uh, yes, there'll be offsetting and other industries created, but it almost certainly has to come at a cost because we are a free and open society. And if it was cheaper and easier to produce things without carbon emissions, we'd already be doing that because because the businesses in the market would deliver that Um, because it doesn't happen. And you mentioned before, the reason we haven't had emission reductions in the cities because we haven't had a mechanism. Yep. We haven't had a tax. We haven't had a any kind of broad well, economic regulations one, to do you so? Guys repeal, well, did yeah, it? we haven't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, according to the democratic will of the Australian people, but but we 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 yeah, we haven't had that, and so and yet we haven't, and then we haven't had the emissions reductions. So, so to get the emissions reductions, we have to put some kind of 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 price, be it a shadow price or a real price, on economic activity that it, that encourages or uses fossil fuels. That comes at a cost. That okay, will cost right. people's jobs. That will lower our income and make us poorer and less able to respond to any aggression in now, our region. Well,
1: let's set aside aggression in the region. Let's just let's put that to one side. You've, you that's that's your view, and you've ventilated it. And, and obviously, it's a very serious debate mm. going on about uh, you know the geostrategic situation in the world. Something that I don't want to minimise, but I just want to put that to one side in this conversation for the moment and get back to the way that you're presenting this transition, right? The, the way you present the, this transition is how this transition was, pre, was presented 15 years ago, before the cost curve in the energy market changed fundamentally, right? We were having this debate around the time when John Howard adopted or, or, or changed the Liberal Party's position and said, oh, yes, actually, let's have an emissions trading scheme. We were having that debate then. Pre two thousand and seven, because the costs of the technologies in order to deliver the, the the glide path to zero to net zero emissions were much higher at that time. There was a legitimate debate about costs at that time, right? the The economics of the energy industry have been transformed fundamentally. Now we see coal is the power being priced out of the market, right? The cheapest, the cheapest available power at the moment is firmed renewables. Right. So, what th- well, I, the way I don't agree with that, but anyway. Well, yeah. well, well just, just, I'm not making this up. This is like, yeah. this is what the people who run the energy market say. Yeah, the Israel same, the energy same energy people. Market, anyway, we, we
0: don't have to, I, I don't need to get into that, but the same people who said that the shutting down of Hazelwood wouldn't lead to any issues and problems, and it did. I mean, I don't put a lot of faith in the energy regulators in this country who have completely destroyed our energy competitiveness. Their advice their incorrect advice has completely destroyed our energy competitiveness as a nation. And we can go through all these models and theories. Let's just look at the real world. Everywhere in the world where renewables has met or gone to 40 or 50% penetration have huge energy problems right now. In Northwest Pacific, in California, in the US, they are facing massive blackouts in their summer, just as we have in in, uh, previous summers and, and stress periods. In Germany, they're really struggling at the moment given their green transition and and you, you can just look any country that has high renewable energy shares invariably has very high energy prices. It's just a one to one relationship. So we can there's a, there's very complicated models to try and show that firm renewables is cheaper. It doesn't seem to play out in the real world. Why is that? Well, why? I
1: just you know.
0: Well, show me, tell me the country, Catherine, where you have high renewables and cheap power and. Don't, not hydro. Hydro is different. I've got no problem with, with firmed hydro, but we just don't have a lot of it. And I don't, I don't mean pumped hydro. I mean real hydro. Uh, show me the country that has renewable energy, except for dams and hydro, and has cheap energy.
1: Well, the, well, the market's currently in a transition, but but I know what happened in the energy why, market. If it's so
0: cheap, why isn't it happening? Well, why aren't those well, countries around? Well,
1: well, love, it is happening.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> like, tell me. Tell me where, where.
1: It is happening. It's happening everywhere, and it's happening here.
0: Well, you, you can't give me a single country where there's high penetration of renewable energy and cheap power.
1: Well, in Australia, I mean, Angus Taylor walks around the parliament saying, oh, we've reduced power prices. We have a high penetration of renewable energy. Okay, I'll give you country Australia.
0: Well, um, we just uh, this month or last month, I should say, we just recorded the highest wholesale power price in Queensland and New, Zealand, New South Wales on record um it's not really happening well, it goes through cycles it goes does go through cycles as okay. renewables come let's, in and then force out firm
1: again anyway, let's yeah. retreat slightly and reset right yeah. because
0: um, the bigger issue the, the go back to the question you asked about well and i accept the cost of things like solar and 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 wind have come down, come down since down the discussion around the how area. Yep, yep they've come down lots yeah the problem is back then what what you missed i think or didn't or glossed over is back when we were talking in the Howard era about adopting emissions trading scheme the big question was cutting our carbon emissions by five percent you know that was that was seen as huge and potentially massively costly and all those things I would say it has actually come at a huge cost when you look at it with decline that manufacturing industry but but now now we're talking about effectively going to zero or I, I Struggle to understand exactly what net zero means sometimes, but but we've we basically got to offset or get rid of all our carbon emissions—not five percent, hundred mm, percent—and that's a totally different question. So even if you're saying, yeah, the costs of energy have come down, as they and renewables they have, they have no doubt. Well, what do we do about transport? What do we do about agriculture? Agriculture is fifteen percent of our emissions, mm. and then and so the hand waving that goes on is, oh well, we've got seaweed, <laughs> we've invented CSIRO a bit of this seaweed, and we're going to feed it to cows, and that's going to reduce our emissions. How does that work? How do you get seaweed out to Western Queensland, yeah, out to the it, desert? Like that's going to cost a lot of money, isn't but, it? Who's going to pay for that? Look,
1: yeah, but there's, look, there's, as you
0: But this know, is the, the detail company, It's really think, important. These are people's lives, their jobs, their whole Of course, the detail is important.
1: As I said to you a minute ago, I think we're on the, we are genuinely on a unity to get about the detail. Right. Of course it's important. Yeah. But it's like, but again, you present this transition as all downside, no upside. You know, farmers all around the country are, you are seeing upside in the transition. Your own colleague, David Littleproud, is creating a soil carbon se- sequestration. Yeah, I hate income that. I hate that. I, I hate that
0: soil carbon stuff, because the problem with the soil carbon <laughs> stuff is that it, it, it destroys rural communities. Like the farmers are happy. This is a misinterpretation, I think, of what some people outside the Nationals Party fail to understand, is farmers are a really important constituency of ours. But there are only a small proportion of our voters, like in the general public, uh, about 5% of our voters are farmers, or it's about 2% of the overall population. So 95% or so of our voters don't farm and aren't farmers, don't own land or farmland. And the problem with the soil carbon markets is what happens is they lock up large parts of what was were productive agricultural land. And suddenly there's no jobs for the tractor drivers, there's no jobs at the feed uh, supply shops. Uh, there's then fewer jobs in the cafes and the petrol stations but, and but, right through the community, no, 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 and sh- there goes our our town. Well, and
1: hang, well, hang on a minute. Like there, there's an income stream for farmers, and yeah, uh, where does that go? That but, gets
0: they, they'll retire to the coast. Well, they won't be they won't be employing. They don't need to employ anyone anymore. The the lane's locked up.
1: What? But they That's don't. A, but they don't engage in consumption. They don't. They don't go. Yeah, and buy as I said, they'll, 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 I'm pretty
0: sure. I'm pretty sure they'll engage in consumption on the Gold Coast and in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and all those sort of places. Good luck to them. But it won't mean much to, to Mungandai. It won't mean much to Charleville. It won't be much to Swan Hill. What do those places do? And, and I want to be a country that grows. This just comes back to a fundamental difference. I still think we as a nation almost have an obligation, almost a moral obligation to grow and develop our nation for the good of the world, be it developing energy resources, uh, uh, food resources, because we're blessed with so much that it's a crime to lock up that land which could grow food for the world's hungry people uh, in a futile attempt to change the temperature of the globe, which I don't think will happen. Um, uh, Whereas, uh, 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 you know, I very much see that our nation should grow and develop and take these opportunities, uh, build more dams. uh, yeah, build power stations, grow and develop a manufacturing industry that's so sad that's been declining. Uh, so that's the, what we should be doing. As okay, a but
1: hang on just a minute ago. So, is, is that the root of it? I didn't realize that with you. Do you not actually accept the climate science?
0: Oh, I, I do accept there's a link. I'm happy to talk about it too. There is a link. Obviously, there's a link between carbon emissions and temperature. I think that it's massively over exaggerated. Um, Why do you think uh, it's massively
1: over exaggerated? Well,
0: again, because of the real world data. So all of the all of the modelled uh, estimations of the impact of carbon dioxide emissions in the world and predicted temperatures rises haven't come true. Well, if you look at We've just had a hot- no, 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 hang on hang on hang right? on
1: hang on back up back up soldier we've just had yep. we've had we've had the hottest decade on record
0: um, yeah but this is this you're missing the detail of what i'm saying that, Sorry. that when you well, you should judge this, this is science right okay so let's let's take it back so we're talking about science so what scientists do is they create a hypothesis and then test that hypothesis against real world data that's that's the scientific method that's got us this far so the hypothesis 20 or so years ago or and updated in various the latest editions the CIMP or SIM5 models of of climate change impacts is our hypothesis that if 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 uh, carbon dioxide doubles in the atmosphere, which is what we're on track for, there'll be a certain increase in temperature, it's known as the equilibrium climate sensitivity, the SC, ECS, sorry, and, and the predictions for that in the IPCC reports and what have you have been traditionally somewhere between one and a half and sort of three and a half, sometimes a bit higher percentage a degree Celsius increase from that doubling of carbon emissions. All of the models that are, are on those different tracks that get you those different results they're above what we're actually experiencing. Yes, temperatures are increasing, mm. except that. And yes, we've had the, highest, the hottest decade and record of all mm. those things.
1: And but a,
0: they're um, actually tracking They're tracking a lot, lot lower than was predicted. Now,
1: what, there's so something that, so up. Makes... Something's
0: wrong, probably something's wrong with the models because it's so complicated. We don't exactly know what, but this goes back to my point that it's a very good book by Steve Coonan, uh, who used to be Obama's Energy Undersecretary, saying when you actually read, and I do read the IPCC reports, the commentary on them is so much different, so much exaggerated compared to what's actually in them. So I accept there's, a, there's all that science is there. Uh, and in the detail, the IPCC reports is, is as correct as it goes, is a correct sort of summary of the science. Obviously, science is always evolving. But, but but, then the the conclusions that are often drawn from it are wild and exaggerated. So you get this situation where people seem to genuinely think that science says that there'll be more cyclones and tornadoes and extreme weather from climate change. There is no evidence for that at all. None at all. If you read the detail, the obvious report, just none. That, that's that's not happening. Even even bushfires, which there's some evidence is really unclear exactly what the impact will be I from different I, climate change I scenarios.
1: I you and I are gonna to have to disagree on the yeah, okay. well, of those well, links.
0: Yeah, I know, but that's like I, I like I do read all the details yes. of this stuff. and stuff. Oh, yeah, me too. It's me too. uh it, it pains me that that our you know our public discussion is so distorted from uh, what are what are complex issues, but get simplified into 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 media scare campaigns to, to sell papers, tell and me, clicks, et cetera. Tell
1: me why do you keep talking about a carbon price when no one is proposing one?
0: Because um, because I'm an economist, and and so and so the the point is here that as I said, I mentioned earlier that. that If we don't have a tax, there'll still be uh, what economists would call a shadow price. Well, there is one now,
1: though, right? There is one now. A shadow price? Shadow prices exist now. Well, to
0: some degree, because we we have some restrictions on what you can do. There's some regulations. You can't go and build uh, an old dirty coal-fired power station, for example. There are some restrictions uh, there are restrictions on, on catalytic converters and, in cars and other things, not just for carbon emissions. But but so there there is a shadow price. So what that is is, the, is is what would what the price would have to be or the tax would have to be to generate the same just differences in economic activity that we're seeing from the regulatory impositions or changes. So mm-hmm. it's not a tax as such. But there is still this 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 cost that's flowing through the economy that, that is summarized in the term shadow cost by economists. But then again, and so the CSIRO so the CSIRO yes, estimated what shadow that. price mm-hmm. we need mm-hmm. to to meet net zero emissions and it's over two hundred dollars a ton, which is not surprising. That's where most of the modeling come, has come out at. That's a lot and it's a big impost but on then, uh, people's But then
1: yeah. why, why why point to a carbon price which no one is proposing more in my view more's the pity because I'm into rational. Market signals, rather than boondoggles, which is what we have now. In it's, it's sort of like you present this Matt as a, a carbon price creates a cost of a transition. When at the moment there's still a cost of a transition, it's just the taxpayers are picking it up. It's that, that yeah. That's what's it's, happening just, it's just, it's it's
0: hidden. It's, it's uh, if you like a, a shorthand way of describing and quantifying that cost. Well, so well, when when well, you've got lots of regulations or boondoggles, in your terms doing different things obviously it's pretty hard to to aggregate those well no very it's not no no well, you just look in yeah. the
1: budget papers and you can aggregate all of the all of the programs for abatement it's not it's not as well hard as we, we can we
0: can disagree disagree there but i think when you've got hundreds of hundreds of programs and i counted them up once when i was in a former life at the time 244 different policies and programs to tackle climate change yeah there's probably a lot more now when you have that many programs, it's pretty hard to, to aggregate them down to a single figure or measure. No, no, because no I all think if you've got to calculate it and add why, them up. I think it's, why I think it's not that hard. I think it's, that's why economists use to calculate something called a carbon price. Yes, and so it's not me doing that. I, I, I mean, I haven't done that because I, I don't have the time or, or expertise to do that. But. But um, as I said, the CSIRO released a report a couple of years ago, which yep. did that, which yes. which calculated what the carbon price would need to be yeah. to to meet net zero. Well, emissions. well,
1: actually, in terms of that CSIRO report, it's not a conventional climate modelling report like the reports that were produced around the time that Labor produced a carbon price. Right, it's a bit different, actually, the CSIRO report, but. Anyway, you're right, it obviously does calculate a carbon price that no one is actually proposing. But it also says, and I've not heard you say this at any point, Matt, at any point, that same report says that if uh, that basically if we that Australia's economy would be $1.4 trillion larger in 2060 under a scenario where we achieve net zero emissions by 2050 compared to a scenario without sub, uh, without significant that's not emission tr- emissions reduction. That's not a
0: fair, that's no, not no, a fair no, it's characterization of two different I've, I've read it.
1: It's totally fair. So
0: they modeled two scenarios, one of which, and I can't remember the exact words they used, but one of which was like an open economy yes, where yes. Uh, there was free trade and net zero emissions targets. Yeah,
1: there's a slow decline scenario other, yeah, and, and, the an other, out, and an out vision scenario, yes. Yeah,
0: the other or- scenario had lots of... Trump-like, they didn't mention the word Trump, but <laughs> Trump-like protectionist barriers that grow up and flow up and that's how they get a smaller economy on the not net zero world. It's not net zero. So it's not ceteris perubus, which is an economist term for all other things being equal. Yes. So what you're comparing there is two scenarios that do a lots of different things, not just net zero emissions. No, 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 do, no, no. What I'm just yep. saying,
1: what I, I'm making a simpler point, right, being a bear yep. of, of, of a simple brain. I'm making a simple point, right? You... you uh, <laughs> Of, uh, um, in various outings, uh, spoken about the carbon price that the CSIRO points to, but you have not at any point uh, referenced the the findings of the whole report, which is that because the economy grows. It's
0: because it's completely uninteresting. So what the uh, what the <laughs> report finds oh, is it that it
1: looks like it's not uninteresting. Oh, it looks. Hear un- me out. Sorry, it's, Sorry. it's, Sorry. it's
0: uninteresting yep. to an contrary because what the report finds is guess what? If the world has free trade, our, our economy grows. Yes. Yeah. Okay. David Ricardo knew that. Um, we don't really need a CG model to tell, that, tell us that. Uh, that's what it shows. And, and, then, and then it also shows that, that the effects of open and free trade compared to protection actually outweigh the costs of imposing net zero emissions, is which whole, is, that's, that's I suppose a little bit interesting. But this, but it's, it's,
1: this is the whole point. Sorry, sorry, I, I actually don't mean to cut you off and I'll, I'll let you finish. But, but this is the point I'm trying to make, right? Abatement doesn't occur in a vacuum it doesn't occur you know we don't we don't ring-fence fe- ring ring-fence climate policy so that's going on and nothing else is happening in the economy that's just not the real world right but unless
0: you unless you believe that achieving or a country signing up to net zero emissions is somehow going to encourage free and open trade it's not actually fair to uh, to test them jointly, you should test them separately. I, I don't believe in that. So if that's your thesis, that's fine. But I don't believe that somehow the world signing up to a net zero emissions target is going to reduce the incidence or pressure for countries to protect their own domestic interest, industries. I think quite the opposite. Which you can see, you can see, uh, given the whole discussion around carbon border tariffs. So in fact, what I think we'll find if we do now go down this path where we sign up to. Uh, to some kind of agreement at Glasgow on net zero emissions, we'll then see countries using that as a justification to reintroduce just blatantly protectionist policies. So, in fact... What the CSO measures is completely wrong. What you'll end up getting is net zero emissions and protection, not net zero emissions and free trade, well, which the, is what they model. Well, again,
1: that's not that's not entirely accurate. And you are you are a, you are a trained economist, right? It's not protection. It's a, it's a leveling of conditions. It is. It, it there's a there's a difference. It's a, it's a nuance. It's a subtle difference.
0: Well, call that, it what you like. It will come at an economic cost. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Sure. So it will it will it well, will if, if cost the world if, economy
1: if we don't reduce emissions. It will. Yes. Uh,
0: and that's not what I'm referring to. But if you put tariffs whatever reason they're for, if you put tariffs on, they might be a justified reason for the tariffs. I'm not saying it's, it's not, It's not, a, not I'm not making a normative assessment here, but uh, from a positive point of view, if you put tariffs on, you will lower economic welfare and growth. That will happen whether they're carbon border tariffs, uh, whether they're just basically for industry tariffs, whatever they are, They will lower economic activity.
1: I'm I'm not Um, a. And that's
0: not that's not measured by the uh, CSIRO study because they don't measure that. I
1: am a free trader. I'm not a. I'm not in favour of tariffs. Uh, You know, we can avoid we can avoid the CBAMs. We can avoid these border adjustments by actually reducing emissions. Like it's it's an utterly avoidable. Well, then we can have a cost. Then
0: let's do a cost-benefit study of that. Um, Because if that's the argument that there's a transactional need here for Australia. reduce emissions, so we keep our access to principally, I suppose, the EU.
1: Biggest trading bloc in the world, pretty important. Well,
0: yeah, but only 15% of our exports. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so, so EU is not that important for us. It's trying, not bad no, important. no, no, sure, so it, it hasn't that?
1: been, and it's been a protectionist market of uh, of which Australia has been largely locked out of in terms of the history of trade, but yeah. we, we are trying to do a free trade agreement with the EU at the moment. Which would create market access to, for Australian producers to the largest gl- global trading bloc in the world. It's not. It's not a. It's not an also. Well,
0: I, I I I think we should worry more about our own region. Um, I, I don't think that. and I agree with John Howard. The UK free trade say. agreement is is good, but let's be realistic. It's not going to deliver rivers of gold for Australia because. Uh, our our future clearly is in trading with the billions of people just to the north of us, yeah. not the hundreds of millions no, no, of people it's very, on the outside. Yeah,
1: of very pithy summary by John Howard. Tell me, we've got to we've got to wrap up in a minute. Although I'm really enjoying this, and I appreciate the spirit in which you're engaging in the That's conversation. That's all right. It's good. Um, I like
0: doing podcasts. It's a bit <laughs> a bit more a bit more time.
1: Yes, exactly. We can just ease into it slightly. Tell me, tell me though, Ryan, Your whole argument around uh, that Australia doesn't need to do this transition like I'm, I'm paraphrasing you massively but let's step through your arguments right Australia doesn't do you uh, need to do this transition because the rest of the world is only pretending that it will do this transition um, you know it, it, it's all bogus we don't we don't need to do any of it. Um, uh, and, uh, and if we do, if we do any of it, there will be massive consequences associated with it, right? For us, uh, costs, uh, it diminishes our, our, um, our, um, strength, de- defense strength. Yep. It, de- it, de- it, diminishes our economic strength because, you know, the only, uh, I'm sort of curious about why the only economy that exists in your mind is a carbon intensive one. But anyway, that's, that's okay. Set that to one side. You... You met where? Okay, sorry. This I'm getting a bit garbled, but it's actually a simple point I want to get to. Right, I am a journalist. I've been a journalist for 20 years. In my profession, we have just gone through a massive structural adjustment, uh, basically triggered by technology. Right, like a, a massive structural adjustment in in uh, in, um, in in 2012. And in the period beyond, 3,000 Australian journalists have lost their jobs as mm. a consequence of this transition that we, that we are going through still, right? And this isn't a pity party for me. I'll get, to the, I'll get to the point of the question. Like, I don't think the government owes me a job. I accept that transitions are what happens in economies, right? I accept that we could reach a point in my own profession where I am no longer employed as a journalist, and I don't blame the government for that. I don't think that that the internet should have never been invented, and that uh, I am owed a job for life, and I have no obligation to participate in the in the growth and change in an economy. So you tell me, why do why do workers in traditional industries, in fossil fuel industries, why do you think they're owed a job for life?
0: Well, I don't think they're owed a job for life. But you kind um, of say they I've are. I've never said that. Owed no, a well, jo- well, well, I'm happy. Those are very. Um, Interesting point you made and I'm happy to, to respond to it. Um, I don't think they're a, a job to life, uh, for, a job, for a job for life. In fact, working in industries like coal minings, your job is quite precarious. Um, it was only five or six years ago that we had 10,000 people laid off in central Queensland because uh, China had an economic stumble and the coal price fell. 10,000 people lost their job in the space of 18 months or so. Mm. Um, it's a very precarious profession. And there was nothing the government could do for that and I didn't call for the government to somehow have a job keeper for coal miners or anything. We did argue for some economic transition packages and what have you for the broader community, but none of those actually helped save people's direct jobs. That's, that's life working in, in the globally connected industries where your, your livelihood is at the risk of, uh, of commodity price swings. Um, in saying that, uh, the big difference between the transition that's occurred in, in journalism, which is a more structural thing and the cyclical mm. issue that I just described, mm. we back up record numbers of coal mining employment now, um, um, the structural thing in, in, in journalism, there's been nothing that, you know, there's been no policy or governments haven't, you know, said, okay, that's it, we're going to subsidise or, or tax traditional journalism and preference, preference modern internet-based journalism or blogs or what have you. It's been a natural outcome. Mm. Now, if it's a natural outcome that that other types of energy come along to displace coal and coal money goes, oh, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. That's that's that. You're right. That's that's progress, and that will be welcome. But that's not what's happening. Um, what's happening is governments are making specific uh, decisions to preference some types of energy production over others, and that, of course, puts the jobs that they're not preferring or discriminating against at risk. Um, and then going back to my other points, that I don't think for, that, for any good cause because what we really do need is, is in my view, us, our economy to become industrial stronger and more powerful given the, the, the clear and present danger we face of conflict in our region compared to a, uh, a much more transitory and long-term issue of climate change. But, but um, that's, that's my perspective here. Yeah. So there's a difference and there's an important difference there between whether or not governments do it. And especially obviously the political angle here is that when the Labour Party and others put up the white flag on our coal mining industry, and we haven't even got into the detail of coal, the other point here, because we've spoken very broad at, at net zero emissions, there is no reason, this is what really frustrates me, even if you believe we should the world should cut its carbon emissions significantly, mm. even net zero emissions most likely, there is no reason that the Australian coal industry couldn't and shouldn't continue to grow. Because we have the best coal in the world. And we're such a small part of it. So so if the rest of what moves away from their dirtier coal it'll actually be great for our industry uh, because uh, there will be a very scarce supply of the really, really high quality coal. Mm. So all this talk that coal mining industries have to transition and reeducate and change—they're just totally wrong. Even on their own terms, they're wrong.
1: No, but you. you, um, you but and that really frustrates me. But uh, but you're presenting a scenario there, right? And uh, look, you know, sadly, we we are going to have to wrap. We could, we could, you and I could seriously do about three hours no, on we could, this. We, we could. We're, do we're a, actually just uh, clearing. <laughs> we, we're just clearing our throats on this, really, but. Like, in terms of that coal argument, right, um, setting aside high quality, you know, whatever, um, like, obviously, we're going to need... Uh, we're going to need all of the above right in order to make this transition and that includes abatement strategies like CCS if somehow they can be made to work right at a commercial scale I've got no issue with CCS it's like we probably need it right I mean I don't think it should be your primary technology uh, and I don't think you should starve other technologies because you just like coal better but I've got no issue with CCS but what you're basically saying right if in in this element of your argument which is the world is embarking on this transition there's still you know there's still a desire for you know australian coal in order to power other you know power other countries power their manufacturing businesses therefore there's a long tail here that australia can take advantage of right that's sort of distilling your argument there's a long tail right in the in the global carbon economy and australia's got plenty of good coal so we continue to sell it like Mate, I like why why do the long tail when you can do when you can lean in and and start to uh, create some industries of the future that will be the necessary technology for the next hundred years. Like, why are you content? Why is it okay? You know, because you 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 make you, you say I want to stick up for regional jobs and regional Australians. You know, why are you not sticking up for their jobs? for the because next it would century be, because
0: because well hang on it would be it might be if we did shut down or shut down early i suppose you're suggesting or in other words we'd have to our own coal mining industry it would be a bad thing for the world not just for ourselves it would be tough for ourselves obviously i hate the word transition but yeah because it's really like corporate speak for people losing their jobs but but uh, um you know the the the, it would be bad for the world on a number of fronts. Going back to what I was saying, it would be bad for the world's environment because what would happen if we shut it down earlier than what world demands dictated, those other countries would have to and would get coal from inferior sources. And there's plenty of coal in the world. So just to be clear, we, we are 5% of the world's coal production, 5%. That's it. And that could easily be replaced almost overnight from Indonesia, South Africa, Russia, etc. Indeed, you can see Russia lining up to take our markets It really frustrates me that, you know, we are so naive in the West, uh, we go along and sign these agreements. Russia is actively building gas pipelines, rail lines to ship their fossil fuels to North Asia and displace what we supply right now. And they're not going to, if they do sign up to net zero emissions, again, Putin's not going to do anything. He'll keep building those. Rail lines, while while we shut put put rocks in our own harbour, and and so so that that's that to me is fundamentally why we shouldn't do it because it would be good for the world. It's good for the world for Australian coal to continue to be supplied. It's better quality. It's better for emissions. Much better for ash. We haven't even spoken about not that this was a topic of this conversation. So I'm not saying it's against you, but you know the, the 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 biggest environmental problem in our world right now is not climate change. It's air pollution by far. By far, it kills, there's a study the other day that said it killed 4 million people a year, mm. air pollution. Mm. And exactly. our coal is a serious solution to that issue because it helps people displace the use of biomass, um, which contributes to, main contributor to that. When you use Australian coal, no one puts Australian coal into a household stove. It's too expensive for that. They put it into high, high modern, high-efficiency, low emission coal-fired power stations, which putting aside the carbon emissions, they still have a lot of carbon emissions, they don't produce a lot of ash or, or nitrous or sulphur oxides, nitrous oxide, sorry, and sulphur oxide, and that helps cut all that air pollution issue and saves lives. So that's why we should continue to not only maintain our coal industry but grow and develop it further because it helps save lives around the world. Well, yeah. Now, of course, it also means there are jobs for us in Australia and, and that's great and it's a great and dignified industry. It's I, I believe myself, I... I, I I worry about all these other new industries too, because what exactly are they? It's a little bit unclear. A well, uh, lot it of the unclear? jobs say, say, let's take solar. Yeah, a lot of the jobs in solar are unskilled construction type jobs. You just put a post in the ground and screw in some uh, some panels. They're not particularly high paid or high skilled positions compared to what you can get on a mine but, site. But, yeah, but and and. And one of the reasons I believe we haven't quite got the social decay and destruction that you see in the US and some parts of Europe from industrial decline, I think, is because of our mining industry. We've been very lucky that young, You don't think skilled... it's
1: because of our social safety net, our welfare system and our tax no, and transfer system see... that actually makes us a much more equal society than in America and actually uh, and and uh, the, the wealth of programs in Australia that have been put in place as workers transition from industries? You don't think that's got anything to do with it?
0: Oh, I wouldn't say it's got anything to do with it, but I don't. I don't think it's a panacea on its own because look at Europe and there's you know it's Italy at the moment. The the right wing party is uh, I think got the plurality of parties in Italy, but it's on the rise, and so is uh, you know um, Marie Le Pen is still a very very strong threat, the serious threat to Macron. You've got a lot of displaced, particularly young men in Europe because they don't have. Traditional work opportunities—they're um, not. They're often people who will not work in an office. Uh, you know, in some of these modern so-called transition industries, they're just not going to go to. This is a totally separate question from what yeah. we been discussing. But the social side of this is really important. No, 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 okay. And same thing in the US, where you've got whole industrial communities like Detroit, Philadelphia, etc., have just been. Uh, absolutely um, emasculated through jobs being industry manufacturing being shipped to China.
1: Yeah, a bit, bit We've like, had
0: that too. We've had that too in pockets. But you've then had this mining industry pop up. Whereas if you've lost your job as a factory operator in Port Kembla, you can go get a massively no, high no, paying no, no. job out in the mines, and that's helped. I No, no, think, no, no. Of course, no. I, I get what you mean.
1: It's sort of a, it's a buffer um, in in times where successive financial crises and and global recessions have created. All of the social dislocation that you are correctly uh, uh, referencing, but uh, just look anyway. My God, look at the time. Hannah will kill us now. Yeah, sorry. Let's let's uh, we, <laughs> let's just. I want to end with a couple of questions to you. Um, so, uh, sort of hearing you describe this transition, oh, we don't know really what it is. We're not really sure whether it creates jobs or whatever. Like uh, Matt, you know, if if <laughs> are you one of these people who would have. Uh, relentlessly driven about in your horse and buggy um, even when the automobile showed up because you were you knew exactly what had happened in the horse and buggy but you don't want to get on the new technology train because you're not sure about it?
0: No, because um, we didn't need a tax on horses to invent the motor car. Um, you know, we didn't need a tax on type riders to invent the, the PC Oh, what I am more worried about is governments deciding on what technology should and shouldn't prosper because I think governments get things wrong time and time again and do massive destruction to people's lives and communities. You realise you are uh, If, if, if it is government. the free choice, if it's the free <laughs> choice, you know, of, of markets and people and technology, great. There needs to be support and help when, when those things happen and displace people. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about... People in rooms in Canberra saying, yep, this is a winner, that is not, uh, this is what we need to do, that is not. That's central planning and everywhere it's been tried, it is massively but, failed and a huge cost to but, people. But that's
1: what you're doing. That's exactly no, what you're doing. One, one, you're one of those people sitting in Canberra. You are a politician. You are in public. Well, I, I don't, right? yeah. Uh,
0: like, uh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, yeah. disavow okay, your own. Okay, well, profession. we can get, there's a little bit, I suppose, a philosophical your, debate about whether no, 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 uh, the, whether free market economics is central planning by another name. But we, we're now getting <laughs> the semantics. What I think the issue is should government seek to. See to uh, direct economic activity yeah, yeah. in such a massive no, way, no, and I don't think No, that no, works. totally
1: legit. Okay, my second question. So, so, uh, so, I think your answer to the question was you would have got the car. Is that the answer to the question?
0: Oh, for sure, absolutely. Okay, right. but, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm a philistine. I've got all the modern technology. Lundi- I, yes, you know, I. I um, but uh, as I say, I. I think a lot of this modern technology is, is, is still comes from coal. I mean, the solar panels we buy are all made from coal in Xinjiang, and probably using slave labour as well. Um, um, what happens if China shuts down its coal-fired power stations? You won't get cheap solar panels anymore. Well, if we had to make them here from renewable energy, they'd be worth a fortune. Well, well, no one talks about that. They sort of put it to one side. But the reason we've got cheaper solar panels is because of mass mass production, mass in fired, coal, five, no, coal mass, five, and coal yeah, fired power plant, yeah, yeah, mass production. That's fine, <laughs> but, but, but we will yeah.
1: actually get to a point where we do mass production from uh, from uh, from low emissions technology as well. But anyway, okay, final question, and it goes back to the science, right? And I understand, don't hit me. Do not hit me with the arguments. Oh, we're one point four percent of global emissions. Right, right. So let's just not go there, right? Because I I haven't done that (laughs) yet. No, no, no. But let's not, right? This is this is a serious. Because I I think fundamentally you are a serious person, right? And I am posing this question to you as a serious person, one to another, right? Yeah. If you're wrong, right? If if the climate science is absolutely accurate and true. If climate change is an existential risk to humanity, right? If 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 that is the truth, right? Your kids are growing up in that world. So but it's, no, not, no, no, it's no, no, not no, 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 no. Existential no on, threat. that's on, not right. Like, that's not. No, it's no, no, not, no, no You we're can not answer me in a minute, gonna, yeah, but I haven't okay. got the question right. out. Right? Okay. 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 Your kids are growing yeah. up in that world, in the worst, in the tipping point world, in the worst case scenario world. Yeah. Right. How will it's you? It's still end? not existential, well, but yeah,
0: but, okay. No, uh, we not all well, going to die. Preface, no,
1: no. Uh, yeah. no, I preface this as a serious person, serious question to a serious. Like I, I'm trying. Yeah. I'm, I'm. Yeah, getting,
0: but that's not very serious, Catherine. No, because is, I mean, this is a no, problem. Our kids no, get told no, no. we're all going to die. They're worried about dying. We're no, not. No. Even if even if it's three or four degrees increase, we're not going to die. People aren't going to die from that.
1: People we'll, are we'll going have... to die from that. They're already dying from that. But anyway, no, no. The question, okay. like, please, please address it with the same yeah. respectful. Spirit yeah. that we've had this conversation in, right? Because these these issues mean something to well, you what and I'll they say mean to something that, yeah, to me. No, yeah. no, no. What I, I'm going to say is yeah. it, uh, the question yeah. is: if you're wrong, right? If you're wrong, how will you account to your own children for your own role in preventing climate action in this country? How will you do that?
0: Because uh, my judgment at the time, let's just say I'm wrong, and because my judgment at the time was there, are much, there were much greater risks, non-climate risks, to their peace and security, which were a much greater threat, uh, and that is uh, the, the aggression we're seeing in our region. So uh, we, th- th- you're right to say this is the 1% doctrine, right, that this is the justification that Dick Cheney used to, uh, to invade Iraq and to convince people to invade Iraq, there's a book that was written on it, a very good book twenty or so years ago now, and that uh, you know even if there were one percent chance that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, uh, it could be catastrophic to the world, and therefore we had to invade Iraq and liberate um, the Iraqi people and remove all risk uh, from a nuclear armed or biologically armed Iraq. Um, uh, look, that that logic has its real traps, right? Because you can use that. For a bunch of different things, and as we are, as you are here, saying, there's a one percent risk. I'm just paraphrasing. One percent risk that we could all be blown up from climate change. Therefore, we should do everything we can to stop it. But you can do that on a range of fronts. And the problem is that real action and choices require you to make decisions about a bunch of different one percent outcomes. There was a one percent outcome that the invasion one percent risk that the invasion of Iraq could lead to the emergence of Al Qaeda. Uh, which can completely destabilise the region and cost thousands of people jobs. Dick Cheney probably didn't think of that very much and it ended up being a massive, mm. another mistake of government's action, uh, which go through simplistic logic uh, and not particularly uh, focus on all of the array of complexities of real-world decision-making. And here i say there's a, there's a, I think there's a much greater one risk of than 1% of China invading Taiwan sometime next 10 years. I don't think it's probable. My assessment is it's not more than 50% risk. Some some serious military uh, experts do think it's um, 50% or greater. I wouldn't put it that high, but i put it higher than 1%. And if that's the case, where is our serious planning to respond to that? That is going to be a massive issue if China invades Taiwan. And I, I just worry we're putting so much effort and thought and policy, limited the limited political policy capital we've got in Canberra into this question of net zero emissions when if that happened, if China invades Taiwan, well... There are so many ramifications for our economy and society that it's hard to even start. For one, there goes the iron ore trade overnight. Where is the serious discussion about that? It's just completely absent. So that's how I justify my children because I believe that that we need to we'll focus on that threat right now, just for right now, uh, ahead of so much um, focus and distraction on this other issue, which is not, in my view, a clear and present danger to the world. If it, you know, we, we have time here too, right? So, so what I, what I said before is really important that that the, the climate models have not shown runaway warming. That has not happened. It has not happened to the extent that they predicted. Now, so therefore, the immediacy of any action right now has been reduced. That's not what you read, but it clearly has been any rational decision-making framework. You've got more information. It's not as risky as we thought. Therefore, we perhaps don't need to do as much on that just yet. If that changes in the next 10 years, okay, I'll change my assessment. If suddenly the models end up, or the, the sorry, the, the recorded temperatures end up matching the most extreme models, yeah, okay, we change the assessment. But that's not happening right now.
1: Yeah, but but by the time you wake up with your new assessment, it's too late. If we're in a well, I, don't, point I, I world, I, it's I, too not
0: I don't think that's true. Um, warming is, is quite, well, I mean, it would be too late to keep it to one and a half degrees or whatever. The, the new threshold used to be two degrees, now it's one and a half. But it's not too late to do something. It's well, never too late to do something. Yeah,
1: it's not what the science says. So, so let But the science,
0: yeah, this would be, I really hate that term. The science does not say, let's act to keep temperatures down to one and a half degrees Celsius. It doesn't say that. Science is not normative. Science doesn't give you answers to policy questions like that. It gives you information about how to assess different risks, challenges, about the costs and benefits. It does not make moral judgments. Whereas we now use science in this term, the science says, you know, take a particular. Moral um, framework, ethical framework, and apply it like that.
1: It's, it's that's not, a, not what science says. No, no, that's not what science
0: says. It's, it's philosophy. No, that's no, that's no, ethics. No, no,
1: no. no. Well, don't not go science. all cant on me. No, it's like it's not. No, it's 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 not. It's not. <laughs> you need
0: to do a Joe Rogan podcast. Needs to be like three hours. We could start talking <laughs> no, no, about no, 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 We have to and different This is not systems. a
1: moral judgment, Matt. This is not a yeah. moral judgment. It's a rational judgment. Anyway, let's. We we have to end. So so your point is. You would you would not be apologising to your your kids, uh, and I'm sorry that sounds oh, well. really personal. <laughs> and I don't, I don't not mean so much I wouldn't be
0: apologising. You asked me how I justify, and that's yes. how I justify. If I was wrong, of course I'd apologise. Uh, but uh, I, I, I'm giving you my justification for for my judgments right now. Mm. But of course I could be wrong. I'm not I'm not here suggesting I'm always going to be uh, right. Of course I could be wrong, but I'd I'd, I'd like to hope that. There's the equal humility from those on the other side of the debate, but maybe I'm hoping against hope. Mm,
1: mm, no, 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 no. I don't think you're hoping you're against hope. Anyway, it's been a good chat. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, all, as always, to uh, my executive producer, Miles Martinioni. Thank you to dear Hannah Izzard, who has listened in to Matt and I duking it out for God knows how long on these really important questions. Thank you to you guys for listening. Obviously, if you want to give us, either of us, me or Matt, feedback, we are are readily found on our social media pages. We'll review this conversation at another time, Matt, because seriously, like there were a bunch of things we covered here, but there were a bunch of things that we didn't get near. So I reckon we'll have another go at this at some point in the future. Thank you all for listening. We'll see
0: you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner.